All right, welcome back, everyone. This is part two of our Historia's episode on pirates and piracy in the Caribbean. I hope you enjoy. All right, I want to change gears a little bit. I want to move forward into the 17th and even into the early 18th century. So I, I know, I know. Yes. It's wild. So the late 1600s and the early 1700s are often referred to as a golden age of piracy. So what is it about this period that was different or special? More about how is piracy in the Caribbean different from earlier forms of piracy? In other words, what made piracy during this period such a major issue, and how is it influenced by contemporary political, the contemporary political and economic situation? So leaving behind Drake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving forward, moving leaving forward, Drake in the 16th century. Leaving Drake over there. To answer your question, I would like to talk a little bit about how historians have approached the study of piracy, conventionally speaking. One of the fundamental components of this approach uh, precisely uh, has been uh, to classify piracy into different cycles, known mm. as piracy cycles. It's a good name. <laughs> yeah, piracy cycles. <laughs> so uh, the seminal work of Philip Goes, his pioneer in his pioneer work on the history of piracy from the early 20th century, um, he established a couple of cycles and a couple of categories related to each cycle. And these cycles have been challenged, but they have been more or less acknowledged and perhaps built upon by later and more contemporary historians like Chris Lane or even Marcus Rediker. And so the first cycle, according to, to this uh, methodological approach, uh, is marked by the French corsairs hmm. from the 1500s to the to 1559, the second by the Elizabethan Corsairs from 1568 to 1603, which will be Drake. Mm -hmm. um, but again, this is an English historian making piracy cycles. <laughs> that's, that's, I, the French Corsairs, I feel like we also hear very little about. So they're also kind of yeah. challenging they were the Spanish first authority. Ones. That's, yeah, they were the first ones, actually. And okay. even in the Caribbean as well. They were the first ones in the Caribbean okay. uh, from the 1550s. It, it all depends on who's Spain enemy at the time. <laughs> and the Caribbean becomes a stage mm -hmm. of conflict. Far away, but close in, in terms of it's the door for mm -hmm. the rest of the Indies, yeah. as it's known, no? the key to the rest of the Indies. So, and then we have the Dutch and Flemish Corsairs from 1559 to 1648, that we talk about the, until the Peace Agreement of Westphalia. Okay, and so that would be after the independence of the Netherlands and the Low Countries yeah, and, okay. exactly. And the fourth uh, cycle, this is important, is the Buccaneers of All Nations <laughs> from 1671 to 1695. The fifth by the privateers, mostly English from 1703 to 1743. And finally, the Anglo-American American Freebooters from 1697 to 1725. Like that's the, the, the general panorama. Certainly these cycles are not static. The years mm -hmm. might change according to the historian, the nation of origin of the historian, <laughs> or even the new scholarship that is produced around this. The thing is that from these cycles, historians have identified and coincided in at least one thing, and is that the golden age of piracy emerges in the late 1640s and early uh, 1650s, and they have divided this era into, into three phases. The first phase of this era is constituted by the Great Buccaneers, uh, which is a category exclusive to the Caribbean context. Hmm. Uh, but before delving into that, I would like to mention something that served as a precedent for 
that created the conditions for this society of buccaneers to grow, which is the establishment of peace between King James James the first and mm -hmm. King Philip the third, the successors of Queen Elizabeth and mm -hmm. Queen Philip the second, in 1604. Why is it important the peace agreement? Well, because after that, uh, a couple of measures that were being suggested in the previous century from the 1580s, for example, was to depopulate the island of Hispaniola, huh. uh, the northern part. Like the, it will be the territory that today uh, comprises the nation of Haiti, mm -hmm. the Republic of Haiti. So the, from the 1580s, you have colonial authorities saying, hey guys, we need to stop contraband. Contraband is killing us. Obviously, this is from the, from the political sphere, the mm -hmm. official one. Everybody's having fun, but <laughs> not the not the governor. Well, that might change, but they're, they're, depending they're, on the governor, maybe exactly. The government, depending on the governor, as we will see, as we will talk about maybe later. Um, so they they suggested a couple of projects of the population, but these projects were not enforced, and it was not until the peace agreement between the two nations in 1604 that actually the royal instructions came, and the project of the population was enforced in the northern. Northwestern part of Hispaniola. And what happened? Well, then you have the establishment of uh, sedentary communities, mainly French or European renegades or maroon sailors. And so, in this sense, and, and then they establish uh, a sedentary lifestyle that, that, is, that became to be known as the Buccaneers. So, in this sense, the remedy proved to be worse than the disease. <laughs> and, and so the buccaneers are associated with this golden age of piracy. Hmm. Why, uh, etymologically speaking, uh, the term buccaneer uh, or buccaneer derives from the word bucan, which is a Taino word that referred up to a particular wooden grate in which they cooked their meat, huh. the, Taino, the Taino indigenous populations of the island. And also, it refers both to the to the thing, uh, to the wooden grate, and also to the way in which they cooked this meat. That it's like a beef jerky or smoked meat, okay. uh, something between those two types of meat. So they named themselves the Buccaneers, and they mainly traded cured meat, tobacco, and sugar with freebooters or filibusters, hmm. mainly Dutch, who were you know, non-Spanish looters. Like the thing, they, they will make, they will do business with anyone but the Spaniards. <laughs> and that's, uh, um, it, also been, it has also been suggested that the term Bucan or actually, it's a, it's a Tupi Guarani word from Brazil that the French appropriated. But you know, there's a couple of theories out there. The thing is that the Bucaneers themselves as a group, as, a, as an entity, as a community, emerged in the, in, the, in the Caribbean. And they had their own political code, they had their own social and economic rules, and the, their own moral set of values. And they are closer to our understanding of pirates that we see in pop culture. Okay. Like Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp-like thing. <laughs> I don't know if those movies are still around, but um, <laughs> it's 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 closer to that, like the bro code in, in terms of the brothers, the the brothers of the of the coast. Okay, and this is mostly in kind of what today is Haiti, kind of yes. North? Okay, yes, certainly. Unlike previous centuries uh, or previous uh, previous pirates or corsairs like John Hawkins and Francis Drake that we talked about before, these 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 buccaneers established a sedentary lifestyle. They didn't go back to Europe. Like we see that Francis Drake and John Hawkins and other 
uh, Corsairs or pirates, depending on the lens or the eyes of the beholder, they will return to England, they will return to France. But they, these buccaneers, they didn't. And they started, and then the, the, the demographic of the Caribbean changed, mm -hmm. giving way to a multinationally controlled Caribbean that is no longer only Hispanic but actually it's more racially diverse. That, that's really fascinating. So looking at kind of these buccaneers, kind of, especially in a place like Haiti, where it becomes Saint-Domingue, it becomes mm -hmm. one of the most important French colonies. Mm -hmm. And so looking at kind of the, the role the buccaneers have in this, this idea of kind of exerting French control in a way. Yeah. So. And also another aspect that makes our Caribbean piracy different from other geographical regions is that Spain gradually lost control of the Caribbean archipelago. But it held on to the greater Antilles. It held on to San Juan, Puerto Rico today, the eastern part of Hispaniola uh, that was eventually given to the French uh, later on, Cuba and Jamaica. But in all the uh, smaller islands, uh, there were uh, they were occupying the islands, I mean the French, the Dutch, and the English. Hmm. Like, for instance, uh, the English settled in, in Nevis by 1628, as early as uh, 1628. Drake just died 30 years ago, <laughs> and they're already establishing a colony in Nevis and another one in St. Kitts by 1630. The French took control over Tortuga hmm. uh, in 1630, and the Dutch occupied the island of Santa Catalina around 1629, and finally, the Spaniards lost Jamaica to the English in 1658, and and so and and so forth. Mm -hmm. In this in this way, uh, it, it was a it was a very diverse society that was uh, growing uh, in the Caribbean, whose origin was yeah maritime predation. It's it is worth noting also that Caribbean sailors joined uh, joined this uh, foreign or European. Uh, sea robbers, such as the case of Diego El Mulato, who was a slave, a former slave from Havana, Cuba, the, who joined uh, Dutch looters, and after eight years of service, he was made captain uh, in the 17th century. So you have also these wow. connections that it's not only the French establishing themselves in, in the Caribbean and the English, and, mm -hmm. but also the interactions that we have with the nationals or, or even in the in the in Diego del Mulato's case slaves from Africa but that were born in the Caribbean as well and you, you have like a very diverse society in the archipelago. That's really interesting so kind of having these kind of a little bit more different opportunities mm -hmm. kind of different opportunities kind of rise outside of kind of these strict kind of social yeah. hierarchies that we see exactly. elsewhere. Um, no that's cool so that's the first so you mentioned there are three phases in this kind of golden age. Yeah. The first phase is this kind of Buccaneer phase. What what comes next? Well, so I I had reserved the the third phase for <laughs> <laughs> for later, but then we have uh, the second and the third phase. It's uh, between the sixteen uh, the sixteen seventies and then the early seventeen hundreds, and and you have uh, increasing increasing establishment of of foreign powers, I, and with foreign I mean non-Hispanic powers. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that the Spaniards were the first ones who came into the Caribbean. So they were foreign to the, in the Spanish eyes, yeah. but they kept establishing themselves in the Caribbean. And also you have different kinds of relationship between these established people in the, in the Caribbean and their or, nations of origin. For instance, it's 
yeah, they they had their own moral, as we talked before, the Buccaneers, they had their own moral code, their own social and economic values. But then you see that as the French and the English and the Dutch uh, keep uh, establishing themselves in the in the islands, they start to found to found like these pirate governments in the Caribbean. Like you find these figures that they were the governor of Jamaica, but he was known to be a great uh, smuggler as well. Uh, and then you have this uh, relationship, this intermittent relationships between what once started as a as a marginal thing mm -hmm. now it's becoming more, more standardized okay. but on their own terms okay so like these rules are really being enforced and kind of coming into kind of becoming a little bit more static a little bit more kind of entrenched exactly uh, or let's say i don't know a contraband got more uh, institutionalized okay. uh, to no. say the least yeah. and, and then the third phase that that's from the 1670s to the to the early 18th, 18th century. And here you have figures like Captain Henry Morgan and Alexander Schemeling, who mm. actually recorded the experiences of the Buccaneers in, in a famous book, The Buccaneers of America, oh, who cool. was published in 1684 okay. in, uh, in France. And, and then you have the third phase of the golden age of piracy from, from the early 17th century, which is a by product of the ending of the Spanish War of Succession, mm -hmm. the, the conflict that lasted from seven, 1701 to 1714. Uh, you have a little bit of the same that we had in the previous century. All the people that fought in this country were out of work again. So after 1714, you have a lot of people with ships, with resources, and they're like, hey, what can we do? So they turn <laughs> to the Caribbean again to make profit from smuggling slaves, attacking Trans-Pacific and Trans-Atlantic cargoes, mm. Spanish cargoes, or also they even turn to other places like the Indian Ocean or the West African coast. So you, you, so that's, you have this, uh, that, that would be the third phase of, of, of the golden age of piracy, and then the world changed. Okay. <laughs> so that's another story. <laughs> that's I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's enough, <laughs> enough to cover. That, that's great. Um, that actually leads me to, to my next question, though. So we hear so much, at least in this country, about English pirates from this period. So we see figures like Captain Kidd, Henry Avery, and Bonnie, Edward Teach, um, better known as Blackbeard. They're often celebrated in popular culture. I mean, we see them in movies, we see them in TV, we see them, I mean, in Pirates of the Caribbean. They, mm -hmm. they make an appearance. Henry Captain Morgan is a, a very famous rum. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> So we, we see all these really famous English pirates. Um, do we also, and you talked about kind of Dutch and French and Flemish and all these other nationalities as well. What about, do we see Spanish pirates as well? I mean, it seems like Spain is kind of the people fighting against the pirates. Mm -hmm. Are they ever kind of the pirates as well? Or is that not so much the case? So I would like to add another female to that list. We Please. have Anne Bonny, uh, but also we have the English pirate Mar Mary Reed. That's the other one, like they, from the 18th century. And so Mary Reed dies in 1621, I think. Is, or she dies at age 21. I, I, might, I might be kind of confusing yeah, myself. Yeah, it's 18th century. Mary Reed is 18th century. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure about, about the Oh, age. no, 1721. Sorry, yeah. But Maybe, yeah, 1721. Uh, so because that goes to my to what I was going to tell you. Uh, these figures that, we, mm -hmm. that are in movies, teachers, or even uh, rum, brand names, uh, <laughs> they actually come from the third phase of the golden age of piracy. 
they come from these, uh, the, they're famous because they're, they're like the, the I don't want to say the last, but yeah, the, it was like the glorious part of the golden age of piracy be, be, before everything changed and the geopolitical panorama changed accordingly in the whole world. Mm. No? Uh, so in the Spanish case, you're right, as you said, there are not uh, many celebrated figures like, like this because of many reasons. One uh, is that I, I was gonna say, that you just said it, uh, Spain and its territories were, virtually speaking, the victims of all of this. <laughs> no? They were the victims of maritime predation, predation from, from, from all parts. And also because they took another approach. They did it late, but they did it nonetheless. They finally understood, I believe, <laughs> that they needed Corsairs. Like, they, they needed that. Um, so they, uh, but they, but it took them almost 200 years to realize that. I don't know. They're correct. Just really. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1647, in, in, I'm sorry, in 1674, Spain is finally decided to enforce the first Ordinanza de Corso, hmm. the first orden, ordinance for Corsairs, mm -hmm. or privateers will be in English, but yeah, Corsairs, uh, or uh, in Spanish, Armadores, because they, armaban barcos like the you know arms weapons so mm -hmm. they will and then that was the way to repel piracy and then they will pay to the spanish crime crown uh, a certain amount the fifth to the crown okay and so you have these uh, corsairs during the time but they're not that celebrated because everybody was doing that then like there were so many uh, as we will be talking i hope soon <laughs> uh, but there were so many but still i want to mention one figure who was a little bit before this uh, measure, the Ordinanza de Corso, that they will have, the, the Spain will have many Ordinanzas de Corso, not only in the Caribbean, but also in the Mediterranean, mm. uh, in the African northern northern coast, uh, northwestern coast, uh, northeastern. Like they, they will have several Ordinanzas de Corso throughout the 17th century until the uh, 18th century. But there is one figure that I would like to stress. Uh, that was celebrated by Spanish uh, people, and this is Alonso de Contreras. Mm. Alonso de Contreras was a Spanish unofficial corsair, and I say unofficial because still they didn't have the ordenanza, ordenanza de, cost, de corso system, but he joined this profitable crusade from the early 17th century, and he recorded his experience in an autobiography entitled Discurso de mi vida, uh, that also incorporated a lot of several traits of the Spanish picaresque. Like, I would say it's based on a true story, but the <laughs> moments that he... That's fair. Um, and he was celebrated by nada más y nada menos, the renowned uh, author of comedias, Félix Lepe de Vega y Carpio, uh, who dedicated a play entitled El Rey Sin Reino, to the Spanish captain, who at the time was uh, part of the military order of San John. And apparently, Lope even based this play from 1625 on Contreras deeds. Hmm. So yes, we have at least... <laughs> <laughs> at least one. <laughs> well. at least one. That's fair. Cool. So I, I kind of want to segue to another figure who you've worked quite a bit on, um, and that's Miguel Enriquez. So you've done a lot kind of work on him recently from around this period. I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about him, about what makes him so fascinating, why you're interested in him. What is it about him that really 
kind of represents this period in general? And also kind of what role did he occupy? So he's from Puerto Rico. What role did he occupy in Puerto Rican society during this time as well? So, well, I'm interested in Miguel Enriquez because of many reasons that we're going to go, uh, we, I, I, I hope we have that time to discuss. But first of all, okay, so Miguel Enriquez, uh, he was born for, uh, to a former uh, slave, Graciana Enriquez, and to an undisclosed father that uh, probably a high clergyman mm -hmm. because Miguel Enriquez knew how to write and how to read and also in Latin and in Spanish. So that's... Yeah, it's pretty, pretty special. Uh, that's pretty special today and imagine in the 17th <laughs> century. And he became a prominent businessman in spite of his humble origins in a very local racial this, uh, society. Like it, 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 there was a lot of local discrimination. It was a very racial divided, right, racial divided society um, towards the mulatto mm -hmm. population. He was considered a mulatto or even a, a pardo, depending on... So he was. Uh, he grew up as a sh uh, working as a shoemaker and leather tanner, uh, but by the 1700s, Enriquez uh, engaged in lucrative, legitimate, and illegitimate trading practices. That is to say, Enriquez' purchasing power and economic fortune was less based on selling products than like legitimate products than on selling contraband products. Effectos de corso, because okay. we have yeah. the, the corso era. At 26, Enriquez uh, was accused for selling contraband and merchandise in the city of San Juan. He was sentenced to one year of forced labor without paid in El Morro, how and a fine of 100 pesos of silver. However, the governor, Gabriel Gutierrez de la Riva, who formerly introduced him to the trade by making him a ventero, a seller, uh, commuted his sentence because he saw in Enriquez a lot of Profit, like future profit. He speculated a little bit. Okay. This guy, he knows the city. He knows how, how how to read, how to write. He knows about numbers. He is audace, no? He is a witty man, and and he was good at selling and reselling stuff. Uh, also, we have to remember that the island was uh, uh, th there were not so many products. Th there was mm. scarcity of mm. products of above all. Uh, products but yeah there was no there, there was no enough sugar there was no enough enough salt there was no enough wood there was no like there was a general scarcity of both products and currency so Enriquez will start working along with the governors got to the point that he owned a shipyard he had 13 workshops and warehouses in San Juan as well as an estate in the countryside and he managed to amass an armory of 100 rifles himself and to provide the island with enough military resources to defend it along with 25 flags of different nations to be displayed overseas <laughs> to do his business. And there are two aspects that particularly make this figure even more fascinating and shocking uh, for his contemporary racially divided society. First, by 712, King Philip V acknowledged his services, awarding him the Medalla de su Real Efigie. And this medal uh, granted Enriquez with an upper social status. Hmm. He became a knight and earned the right to be called Don Enriquez, or Sir Enriquez. Uh, imagine, in a society so racially divided, we have the castas, uh, it's a society of castas, and then you have the son of a former slave being a sir, a don, don yeah. Enriquez. 
That's incredible. That's totally yeah. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, in and second, another another fact that makes this figure truly shocking is that the next year, the following year, in 1713, the Spanish king granted Enriquez again another thing. This time was a real cédula auxiliatoria, which was a legal protection that granted Enriquez with the power and right to appeal directly to the Council of Indies, El Consejo de Indias, the organism in charge to control all the uh, business of the new world. So he had the legal protection to and the right to appeal directly to the Consejo de Indias without the need of any intermediary figure. Not a governor, not a colonial officer, like he will write directly to the Consejo de Indias who uh, in turn, or the organism, and the organism in turn will forward the letters to the king. So he had like a very direct channel with the institutional bureaucrat apparatus mm -hmm. in the Iberian Peninsula. And as historians have claimed, he was virtually untouchable. He had on the one hand, the like Francis Drake, he was a sir, he became a <laughs> yeah. sir. And on the other hand, he was, he had a, a, a legal protection to communicate directly with the Consejo de Indias and appeal any legal dispute. Like if you have issues with a legal dispute, just write directly to the Council of Indies and solve the matter. So these two things were make him a very powerful person. Also, he was, why? Why he was given this? Also, obviously, he was very resourceful. resourceful. And he, uh, he was a armador de corso, and he loaned his chips uh, frequently to deliver important news or avisos in the rest of the, of the Caribbean and the rest of the West Indies. He, he provided services of transportation free of charge to colonial settlers mm. or Franciscans or Jesuits that wanted to, to arrive in their financial destinations in the West Indies. He even helped to, to, to defeat English troops that wanted to occupy the island of Vieques close to Puerto Rico. It was his fleet that actually uh, was used to do that because there, was the, there were no available Spanish uh, ships or vessels in the island to protect the the Caribbean, so he will be the person that they will call. Interesting. He will be that guy. I have yeah. a guy that have a guy, so he will be that guy. Although he's a guy with like a private fleet yeah. and a private <laughs> army, it sounds yeah. like, and in the ear of the king. So um, exactly. I I, I want to follow up with him in, in a second, mm -hmm. but before I do, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things for me just about this is looking at Puerto Rico's role in the Caribbean as well. So I was wondering if kind of before we kind of continue with Enriquez, if you could just talk a little bit about the situation in Puerto Rico within the Spanish Empire, looking in the early 1700s, maybe kind of put this in context a little bit, and also why they wouldn't have their own fleet, for instance, and be able to kind of defend themselves in any kind of effective way. So broadly speaking, or in short, uh, the situation in Puerto Rico within the Spanish Empire was, was not bad, it was very bad. Like, <laughs> it was characterized by economic scarcity, both in terms of the lack of the circulation of currency and also the shortage of, of goods, as we were talking mm -hmm. before. In relation to the military protection of the island and other Hispanic Caribbean islands, they depended on the Situado Mexicano, which was established in the 1580s. Could uh, you explain a little bit? Yeah, so that was, uh, that was like an economic stimulus today. It was a funding for that was sent from the New Spain, from Mexico, mm. uh, today Mexico. And it was, a, it was a funding assigned to the to the Caribbean, like it passed through Cuba, Hispaniola, 
and Puerto Rico, the money received was supposed to be used to the construction of military fortresses and systems of defense. So that was the main source of economic income. Hmm. And it was supposed to be used to, yeah, to build up fortresses and stuff. But what do we have when we have a lot of money con concentrated in one place? Well, people might use them in another uh, fashion. <laughs> and so you have several, and, and this was established in the 1580s, and it went through uh, it went through the 18th century. So, but the Hidalgo Mexicano was not stable. Like sometimes it, it it came this year, but it didn't came last year, or it didn't come. Sorry, it didn't come this year. It didn't come last year. When is it gonna come again? Oh, it's been four years. Like we had that problem of inconsistency uh, or instability. Or when is the Hidalgo Mexicano gonna come? And also you have the problem of corruption and all these governors deviate, de, uh, deviating uh, or redirecting these funds to other things. Like, like themselves. Uh, like themselves, <laughs> yeah. uh, mostly themselves. <laughs> and so in this way, uh, institutional corruption and contraband went hand in hand. Like mm. that, was the, uh, that, was the, that was the way to go. And, and going to the part of, the, of your question, like why they didn't have like the Caribbean, the, their own fleet. Well, there was a fleet. Uh, it was the Spanish Armada of Barlovento hmm. uh, that was established in the in the late seventeenth century. Uh, there was the Armada de Barlovento and the Armada de Sotavento. The Armada de Barlovento was the one in charge of the Caribbean. And however, in the early seventeen hundreds, what happened to the Armada of Barlovento? Well, it was relocated. It was relocated into Europe to fight against uh, English and the Low Countries, leaving unprotected the Caribbean. That seems like a poor <laughs> idea. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would have made that choice. But, uh, I don't know who was in charge. <laughs> that's, that's fair. So due to these factors and the vulnerable position of the islands, like you have many islands, uh, you have many places to hide uh, in terms of if, if you're coming to, to the Caribbean, you can hide in the in the already occupied islands by other forces, mm. rivals of the Spanish crown. Uh, so you have very multiple English, English, Dutch, and French attempts to seize or control the islands of uh, Hispaniola, uh, Cuba, and uh, Puerto Rico. In the case of Hispaniola, finally the French got the, what is to the Haiti. No, mm -hmm. they, got, they 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 just they just couldn't control it anymore. Like it was. Uh, so and also you have uh, wars uh, between England and Spain in 1639, in 1639, and you have a very short panorama, conflictive panorama in Europe and nothing in the Caribbean, like not even ships or vessels or fleets to protect those mm -hmm. vulnerable things that are a part of this uh, Spanish empire that it's been attacked from multiple points. And also contraband, as we said, I've said before, like the, they, they also, uh, it, the, the, I want to say that it was not that, like it was terrible, uh, but that's an opinion, I believe. <laughs> but it, it was a very scarce situation, dire situation, to say the least, but they managed. They, they managed to, to actually make bit business and, and create this 
Antillian uh, network of contraband, uh, but also of circulation or move circulation of or, or, or movements of individuals in these islands. And I think that lasted until the 20th century. That's interesting. It's, it's a kind of like a different way of doing business or a different exactly. network of business that kind of it's doesn't rely on this kind of centralized authority in the same yeah, way. Yeah, because it doesn't work. Like, yeah, because, they, yeah, because <laughs> they're just not there. Yeah, It's not there. Well, that actually leads to, to my last question. I want to go back to Enriquez for a second. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the way that his career is influenced by the racial and economic factors of the Spanish Empire during the, in the Americas during this period. So kind of looking a little bit at this contraband, also looking at this kind of connection that that you see or that one could see between war and commerce right so looking at this kind of the way that we need to kind of get these different networks set up we can put in place to kind of circumvent these other networks because like, of a way of filling in for the, this lack so yeah uh, precisely I, w- I would like to stress that Enrique's uh, racial condition as a mulatto uh, or pardo had a great influence both in his success and in his failure throughout his career uh, why is that? Well, uh, as we talked uh, as we talked before, uh, he was he was very close to several governors that he had them in his pocket because of his plenty amount of resources that we just discussed, and the governors on their part provided Enriquez with the authorization or licencias de corso to conduct business, which allowed them to receive a generous cut from Enriquez' dealings. Uh, in other words, Enriquez was in part in charge of the dirty work dirty business, whereas the Spanish governors secretly profited, or not that secretly, but they thought that it was secret, <laughs> from his spoils and remained officially detached from these practices. Uh, Enriquez was representative of the intersection, intersection between war and commerce because, as you said, he participated in both dynamics. Hmm. No, there's a lack of, there's both, a lack of commerce and a lack of of military tools and resources to defend the the region. So he is at the intersection of both things, of war and and commerce. There's a shortage of goods, there's a shortage of military weapons, and he fills that void. That void. So, be uh, so he participated in, this, in both dynamics, and and he also, I believe he he was ahead of his time. He, be, he, he wrote to the Consejo de Indias directly because, you know, he had that tra- open channel of communication. And he wrote to the ki- Spanish king so, uh, several times to promote direct commerce uh, with the port of Cadiz, exporting goods. Like, he looked for solutions. Mm. Yeah, of course, he was in charge of the monopoly. But he looked for uh, solutions of this problem of commerce of, in, the, in the Caribbean. And, and he believed that in open markets, uh, he conducted uh, business with foreign, multiracial, and international parties in the broader context of the non-Hispanic Caribbean. He befriended Irish and Jewish alike, with whom he engaged in both legal and illegal trade. He belonged to a different era, the, the, golden, the golden age of piracy that we have been talking about so far, in which the categories related to maritime predation while being legally standardized and openly acknowledged by this time by European powers, they, ge- they became nonetheless slippery when dealing with contraband and, and corsairing. Like wh- wh- where do you draw the line mm-hmm. between both uh, things? Uh, because it, it's a, both contraband is economic predation as well. Yeah. And corsairing is military predation, and he participated of both. That's true, but kind of what do you do when there's such a lack, right? What do you do yeah. when you have the scarcity? Like, I mean, people need sugar, they need mm-hmm. lumber, they need these things. 
So there, there is such a void there as well. That, and then he's the one that comes to, to fill that void, uh, his way, of course. And unfortunately, he wasn't unaware of what's coming for him. So, so what, what happened? What, what so was his, his It's fate? very sad. It's, it's so sad. No, it's actually, it's actually embarrassing, I think, for, for the 17th century society. 18, sorry, 18th century society. And also the 21st century society in Puerto Rico. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why. So Enriquez in the past, he had been celebrated by the Spanish king. And everybody was happy with him because... He was very hostile against the English. Mm -hmm. no? He stopped an occupation of the English in the island of Vieques, uh, close to the island of Puerto Rico. Uh, so he was very celebrated of that. He was made uh, a sir, a don, because of that, a uh, captain. Uh, however, by the mid-1740s, uh, the geopolitical panorama had changed, and Spain and England, they wanted to improve the relations, the diplomatic relations. They were not at all improved, but they were looking forward to it. And it was improving. And historians have speculated that the advisors of King Philip V suggested that the Spain should restore uh, the Spanish naval glory of past times. And in order to do so, they needed the English uh, con uh, support and contribution. Mm. So they wanted to like, sweet things a little bit, uh, the panorama, uh, and it was not then a good business to be hostile against the English. Therefore, it is believed that Enriquez became the pawn to be sacrificed in this, in this game. Also, it was a very racially divided society, and the higher sphere of and the aristocratic or let's say the the, the economic uh, powerful part of the society in Puerto Rico was not happy to see all the resources like like, like almost eighty percent of, of all the earnings of all the wealth of of the island is in the hands of a mulatto. Uh, so they they complain a lot. They put Enriquez in a lot of legal disputes, and then Enriquez had to spend a lot of money mm -hmm. in those disputes. And finally, the two powers granted to him by king, by the Spanish king, the Medalla de su Real Efigie and the Real Cedula Auxiliatoria, were no longer acknowledged by either colonial or Iberian authorities. Uh, he died in disgrace. He died uh, secluded in a convent uh, as a fugitive, oh. while other sailors were granted uh, licencias de corso. Matias de Abadía, the, this governor, he, he wanted Enrique's business. Hmm. He, he wanted to be Enrique's, and he was the governor. So, uh, And then you see that, and not only he died in economic ruin and totally deprived from whatever he had in a, in a shift, uh, but also the fact that he was a mulatto captain, that he was black, I think it was a very crucial factor, contributing factor to the fact that uh, he also, and his legacy, was removed from the historical, the, the official historical discourse of Puerto Rico. Like, we don't study this figure in Puerto Rico. Like, it's not a famous figure. It is, it's, it's only been a couple of years ago that his figure has hmm. re-emerged. Uh, only... Uh, a Spanish historian from the 70s, from the 1970s, uh, Angel Lopez Cantos, he's the main biographer of this figure. And it was less wow. than 50 years ago. Uh, so 
the fact that his racial uh, condition contributed not only to his economic demise, but also to his personal demise and the fact that he was erased from history. That's really sad. Um, that actually, that leads pretty, I, I don't want to end on like this down note. So this, this does lead to kind of my, my last question. And that's where I, I want to kind of move away from, from Enriquez a little bit and talk a little bit about teaching. And I was just wondering if you could just speak really briefly about why you think it might be important for us to study and know about piracy in the early modern period, know about figures like Enriquez, for instance. And then also what are some ways that it could help us come to a deeper and richer understanding of this period? Well, so going back to the beginning, <laughs> I believe that it is in, uh, that it, it is important the the study of the early modern that the, of early modern piracy, but specifically as we were talking at the beginning of this conversation, uh, the study of the discourse of piracy and the manipulation of that discourse and its its instability, because I think that all this malleability and plasticity of the discourse of piracy. It provides a cultural framework to understand the configuration and limits of national, economic, and political institutions. By rethinking the historical continuities and fractures of past times in contemporary debates, which is a methodological approach that I apply to my pedagogy uh, personally, I believe that the study of early modern piracy shows another angle in the development of European imperialism and more broadly to the to the social construction or spe- of specific categories of identity hmm. and the ideologies behind them and the the benefits or the agendas behind the construction of such categories for instance uh, if by conceiving uh, piracy as a social construct of course there were attacks of course there were raids yeah it's not that they didn't. It didn't happen. Yeah, it did. But let's go. But studying the conceptualization of the discourse uh, of, of 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 early modern piracy would allow us to further uh, deepen our understanding of con- the contemporary usages of different terms, like the term the terrorist, for example, mm. or the immigrant, or who are those categories that seem to be a threat to society these days. What are the discourses at play behind these categories? Is it, uh, is it an economical agenda, a political agenda, a specific agenda to whom, how? And then we can deconstruct these uh, social categories and understand better the construction of, 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 of the categories of identity and, and understand the discursive interactions and structure uh, and structures uh, of their complexity as as cultural systems from from within, and and I believe this is this yeah, that is always interesting for students like to understand the skeleton behind a word behind a concept that defines a whole era yeah. or a whole time or a whole year I don't know uh, today the day runs so fast that maybe is the is the hashtag of the day but what's <laughs> behind that. What are the discursive interactions be, between uh, uh, behind that concept? And I believe that this approach to the story of early modern piracy, of the discursive interactions behind how it's perceived, constructed, how images are revived, or how images are taken aside, mm-hmm. allow us to understand us 
better in the end and understand all all the all the, the skeleton of, of these ideological systems. I, I think I think that sounds great. So kind of looking at this this idea, this this discourse of piracy being kind of symbolic or representative of these other discourses that we need to understand as well. Discourses like today, things like terrorism or the immigrant or, or the whatever. Immigrant in the past we have so many others, yeah. no? Like it depends on, on uh, who where where side are you, are you and but also uh, so yeah, piracy in this sense, in the in the 16th, 17th centuries, that is where we have been talking about, it's an excuse to talk about other issues. Like where the, the question will be, when sources are talking about piracy, what are they really talking about? Like yeah. today, when we're talking about terrorism, what are we really talking about? When we talk about the problem of immigration, what are we really talking about? What, what is the threat, mm-hmm. if any? Of course, if there is a threat, but in Bush, Direction. Uh, what discursors are behind that thread are by, are being manipulated. Yeah. So how do these terms? How do how do these terms kind of reflect these deeper ideologies and these deeper exactly. beliefs? I, I think that's really interesting. So, Cecilia, thank you so much for for taking the time and, and chatting. I I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.